With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi everyone, I'm Stephen Goldman of the Say It Ain't Contagious panel. Just a quick note before we commence this second episode of the series. We recorded this episode the day before we learned of Henry Aaron's unfortunate passing, and it would not be fitting for a baseball program, and particularly a baseball program that comments on the intersection of culture, politics, history, and the game, not to comment extensively on his loss. However, since the episode was completed at the time, we decided that it would not be appropriate for us to reconvene in hasty fashion and just tag some quick thoughts at the end, but rather we will come back next week in episode three and devote the hour to the great Hammer and Hank. So we just wanted to make you aware that this episode's generally jocular tone was not an oversight or an act of disrespect, but rather we just didn't know, and we will observe the moment appropriately next time. At the end of this episode, you'll hear some talk about what we're going to do next time. Chances are just to let you behind the curtain. That's something that will drop in briefly. Well, I will at the very end because I am the last one left in the room. So for now, suffice it to say that we all were greatly moved and greatly saddened by Henry Aaron's loss. Nevertheless, we hope that you will enjoy this episode and return next week for an extended look at his life and legacy. Thanks for your patience and for listening to Say It Ain't Contagious. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garitti, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to Say It Ain't Contagious. And just to remind you, we are a discussion of baseball, social justice, the politics of our country, and the intersections of all of those things. We are a combination of political scientists, baseball historians, baseball writers. We all consider ourselves fans and social activists. So that's what brings us together. We sort of look at the United States and its politics and its culture through the lens of baseball. You know, you know, Tova, one second. Let me let me interrupt for one second. I'm going to bet that we do not all consider ourselves fans in the same sense that you meant fans just now. Okay. I bet Craig and I feel differently right. about that. I'm, I don't want to speak for Craig, but I bet we're fans in the same way that that those of us here no, who are. I get it. You don't you don't even want to be called fans for professional reasons. So can you just cut it out? Just or do that. I need to redo it. No, I'm actually stimulating conversation. <laughs> this is live, folks. I was trying to be spontaneous. That's all. I, that, that's...
That's fine. That Craig and Stephen hate baseball. And the rest of us <laughs> That's where we were going. I, I'm literally writing a book right now about the definition of fandom and how we should think about it. Should we just start over? <laughs> I guess we should tell people who we are. Hi, I'm Adrian Burgos from the University of Illinois, where I teach history and write on Latinos in baseball. You can follow me at AD Burgos JR on Twitter. Oh, I'm Craig, by the way. I am a frenemy of the Atlanta Braves, and I write the uh, daily baseball and culture and politics and whatever the hell else I want newsletter, Cup of Coffee. I'm Stephen Goldman. I'm a writer and editor at Baseball Prospectus and the host of the Infinite Inning Baseball Podcast. I'm Frank Garitti, historian at Columbia University, and you can follow me on Twitter at F Garitti. I'm Lincoln Mitchell, political scientist at Columbia University, and you can follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. And I'm Tova Wang. I am, and my day job is as a research fellow at the Ash Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. And you don't want to bother following me on Twitter because it's really boring. <laughs> but it, it can change. It could be, this could be an aspirational moment for you. That's not what I aspire to, actually. And where do, where do people go if they want to follow Sadie and Contagious on Twitter? Get all the updates about the new podcast coming out, where they get the podcast, what we're talking about. What's that? Does anyone know? That's a, a great thing because I screwed it up last time. None of you pointed it out to me, but uh, others. I know. <laughs> yes, it is at S-I-A-C pod, P-O-D. S-I-A-C pod is the accurate Twitter handle. And can people subscribe yet? I had somebody ask me if they could subscribe with that. They can at any podcatcher that allows you to do that. We are now on all the major podcatchers. You can go to Apple iTunes or whatever your preferred vendor of podcasts is, and it would help us greatly if you rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the show gain attention. Have you seen this short documentary, The Adventures of Superfan? No, I haven't. Oh, you should tell you. It is a weird movie. I think George Reeves kills himself at the end of that. <laughs> With those of you who are academics who teach classes and attend faculty teas or committee meetings, would you consider yourselves a fan of being a professor? I tell my I tell my students I'm a good professor and a bad academic, and that means I don't attend faculty meetings or faculty teas. So I would say I'm a fan. I, w I would not say I'm a fan of politics, though. That's perhaps a more relevant. Well, can I say I'm a fan of democracy because that's basically what I focus on. I feel like it's important. Prince used to say that the word fan came from fanatic and he didn't like it. So he called the people that liked his music friends. So I'm a friend of baseball. I guess I'm a friend of democracy, I too. I am not I don't a know. fan. Baseball's no friend of mine. I am not a fan of the academic life, uh, though I, I, it is my job. It is a job that I enjoy. I'm down with what Craig said. Friend is good. I usually, my stock answer here is that when your hobby becomes your avocation, it changes your relationship to it. Well, when your friend becomes your friend, it changes your relationship to it too. Familiarity breeds contempt. So there we are. This is exactly true. This is true. There's a lot of kind of like nasty, bad vibes that baseball insiders have towards fans. I hear a lot. And that's something we, we can discuss more. But let me say this. I'm proud to be a fan. I'm proud to be a fan of specific teams. I'm the kind of fan who, before I check the latest, well, we now have a new president, but the latest, you know, atrocity by Donald Trump, I check and see how the Giants and the Yankees did. So I'm a fan. I'm not really that label. Well, I guess we should start talking about the inauguration, which was yesterday. Uh, I lived. <laughs> I lived through it physically and I suppose emotionally. What did you guys all think or feel about it? I was happy to be bored. 
And I mean bored in the best sense of the term in that as Joe Biden began talking and talking about unity and American ideals and things, I was like, wait, this is familiar. This is the kind of stuff politicians just kind of say. And I usually tune out because I care more about what is done rather than what is said. And I like this feeling of not having to sit on the edge of my couch and worry if some atrocity is going to come out of his mouth. So I'm pretty happy about that part of it. And for the first time in a long time on January 21st, 2021, I woke up in a good mood uh, because uh, we have somehow survived the reign of terror of uh, 45, the person known as Donald Trump. Yes, I'm excited he's no longer in the White House. Yes, it is significant that uh, Kamala Harris is the first woman, woman of color to be vice president. Uh, Yes, it was wonderful to see the spectacle of diversity at that inauguration. Uh, And yes, I'm sick and tired of a Democratic Party representational politics. On the one hand, it's normal and it's a welcome relief to the fascistic uh, representation of politics that we saw with Trump. But I'm eager for substantive transformation. Uh, And and we'll we'll see if if the Biden administration can start to usher that through our, our political culture. I was really struck by a couple of things at the inauguration. One was... Younger younger listeners should know that it is not normal for the outgoing president to make an angry, gloating speech in front of his family before before the most homophobic administration exits stage far right to the tunes to the tune of a an upbeat gay anthem. That was a bizarre, bizarre moment. But the other thing is that we kept hearing yesterday democracy prevail. As as somebody who has written books about democracy and worked on democracy issues all around the world, that is absolutely not true. The definition of a democracy is when both major parties agree or when all major parties agree on the regime type. If the survival of democracy depends on one party winning, which is what the case is in the United States, democracy hasn't prevailed. Democracy is still struggling. We are still a, we have not consolidated our democracy. That language is very dangerous because so many just want to deny the reality not just of the scope of the democratic rollback under Donald Trump, but how deeply it's rooted in American history, in American politics, in who we are. So I was really upset by that democracy prevailed. Yesterday's inauguration was, for me, for the rest of my family, a sigh of relief. I'm sure for many people, as as others have noted, waking up every day wondering what the president tweeted overnight has been disruptive to many of our sleep cycles. And now I I think we'll sleep a little differently. It was also interesting watching the pageantry of an an inauguration and seeing Sonia Sotomayor uh, swearing in Kamala Harris. And perhaps the levity in our household was when uh, Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo, went up to uh, sing. My my, uh, wife, who's also a New Yorican, from the South Bronx says she better not blank this up, um, and uh, and and saying I don't think she has the chops to uh, be singing in front of her. And then was very pleased that J Lo pulled it off. But I also wonder were the words that J Lo said in Spanish the first time that Spanish was uttered during part of the official inauguration events proceedings. I, I got to say that that does bring up the one major baseball connection that there was in the inauguration, which was the prominent position of Alex Rodriguez on that stage. And Sonia Sotomayor. She's a baseball person, too. She oh. entered the 1994 strike. Yeah, and right. 
and she's a big Yankee, and she's a big Yankee fan, Toby. Of course, I know that. She's she actually uh, sat a couple of times, I think, in the judges' chamber. Yes, Aaron Judge. Oh, that's right, she did. Yes. So that was cool to tell. A Rod is now more ubiquitous than Elliot Gould was in 1970s movies. He just shows <laughs> up everywhere. <laughs> but, you know, to pick up on something Adrian said, Joe Biden used the phrase "systemic racism." I don't think an American, a sitting American president has ever said that phrase, except for Donald Trump to use it in a mocking, to insult the idea and to mock the idea. Or that white was, supremacy. That's right. The way he, we have not had an American president speak so clearly. And now, obviously, there's a racial component to this. Barack Obama couldn't in that way. Joe Biden's an old white guy, but it was still striking. It's interesting to see Biden, like you said, he's an old white guy and he's been around forever. He's been running for president longer than people I hang out with and have beers with have been alive. The fact that he's sort of saying these things, I don't know that I would chalk it up to a transformation in Joe Biden as opposed to a transformation of the times, a moving of the Overton window, whatever you want to characterize it as. But it is sort of striking how... I, I don't I don't want to like say, oh, it's been seamless and he's taking to it like a fish to water or anything. But it's it's very nice to see how relatively seamless uh, it has been that he has been taking up talking points that just a few years ago would have been absolutely radical and astonishing to hear from a president. A few years ago, just even just before the Floyd protests of last summer. Yeah, I mean, you know, true. systemic yeah. racism uh, and white yeah. supremacy are terms that were even, you know, frowned upon in scholarly circles, you know, among folks who think of themselves authorities on racism, right, in American history. So it's no question that they got the memo that women of color uh, need to be prominent in this administration and in this and in the ceremony yesterday in the inauguration. Absolutely. I think that's 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 clear. Uh, obviously, Amanda Gorman's you know, performance was lovely to see. Absolutely. A wonderful thing to see that poem again. You know, and, and it, yes, it warmed the heart, you know, and I'm a cynic, so I'm going to sound hypercritical like most of us are here. But it, again, I, you know, I, the real question here is what are the policies that are going to be emanating from this administration that's going to address systemic racism? Right. Uh, among the host of other issues that um, that are facing the administration and the mess that Trump uh, left behind. Yeah, but the executive orders are pretty promising so far. I mean, that Absolutely. was to see that on day one, all the things that he undid from Trump was that was the heartwarming stuff, really. And if I could just make a rare optimistic remark, Joe Biden's singular political talent, Donald Trump's singular political talent was he set the agenda. We always talked about what Donald Trump wanted to talk about. Joe Biden's singular political talent is he finds the center of the Democratic Party. And the reason he spoke that way is because that's where the center of the Democrat, not all the Democratic Party, but that's where the center of the party is now. And that's extraordinary. And that gives me hope that the, that the legislation that we see will be, I mean, that 1.9 trillion COVID relief bill is, is an enormously, by the standards of America, progressive piece of legislation. So there is hope. There's also the problem that people like Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, and, and you know Diane Feinstein, who just had bizarre comments about Cruz and Hawley just in the last 36 hours, still are, are hugely important because they're the most conservative Democrats whose votes they absolutely need. But there is some reason to be confident. I want to circle back to JLo because um, I was kind of being flippant before a little bit, but I also want to acknowledge that during the Super Bowl, she was the one who performed with the uh, little brown kids in cages and to have her as part of the inauguration um singing I, I thought i don't know how many people remember or connected the two dots i thought it was pretty important uh pageantry added to what's going on um and i am curious as to what 
Biden is going to do about the wall, about family reunification with the kids who were separated, the Latino kids who were separated from their family under the previous administration, and how quickly that gets done. It's you know so heartbreaking to know how many of these young kids are still, you know, and they don't even know where the kids' um, parents are. And so, you know, there's a, as Frank was noting, there's a lot of work to be done. So, yeah. That was actually addressed in one of the executive orders was the uh, separation of families and a lot of other immigration, DACA, all that stuff. And so, I don't know. I mean, I was, I was tremendously encouraged and I, I also felt calm in a way I hadn't in a long time. Um, and I think that was probably the response of a lot of people as well, whether or not they were exactly happy about it. I was thrilled. And yet, you know, one of the liberating things about the day was no longer having to care what Donald Trump or any of his acolytes thought about what was happening. But I admit that periodically throughout the day, I checked social media and accounts like Parlor Takes, I think for schadenfreude reasons, but to see how they and the, the Q people in particular were reacting and uh, and they were rending their garments the scales were it, well maybe that's that's too strong a word they they definitely were were dealing with with some cognitive dissonance because things were not going the way they thought they would and they still haven't so some of them were doubling down and saying this was all part of the the plan capital P plan and others seemingly finally realizing that they'd been played. But I'm not sure that that's not a measure of, of someone in an abusive relationship, the fact that I kept looking. Yeah, I mean, his being thrown off Twitter is a huge deal. Yeah. And it's going to raise a lot of issues going forward with all of the media companies and tech companies. But for the moment, wow, that's such a relief. Can you imagine if he had his Twitter account on Inauguration Day? It would just be one crazy thing after another. And we didn't have to deal with that. Twitter saved journalism from itself because of that. I mean, I don't think it would be possible for the Washington press corps to resist just reporting on what Donald Trump, regular citizen, is tweeting about from, you know, a toilet in Mar-a-Lago. So the fact that we didn't have that was just a blessing. It was also great that he wasn't there, you know, in the end, right? I mean, like just not having them as a distraction because that'd be part of the coverage too. Was to, you know, they'd be watching his every gesture during the, uh, the ceremony itself. That's absolutely right. I mean, I don't think anyone watched the inauguration said the only thing would have, that would have made this better would be Donald Trump on stage. <laughs> that was part of my cognitive dissonance, though, because if I were to rank presidents, I, I think that George W. Bush would be or was towards the bottom of the pile, if not at the bottom of the pile prior to the last four years. But a, as much as I really despise the man, in spite of what many people, including ex-presidents and their spouses, find his just incredible affability, I did value the fact that he participated in this civic ritual and that Trump had forever placed himself beyond the pale. I mean, if he hadn't already, by kind of absenting himself from from this thing that would have further woven him into the uh, tapestry of American presidents and, and had him showing up for all the reunions and birthday parties and funerals and, and so forth. Now he's outside of that where he, he always belonged. So it, it's strange to to see Bush and feel like I can respect at least the fact that he made this gesture. 
It goes back to what Lincoln said, though, about, you know, if you agree that, you know, sometimes your party is out of power because that's what the regime is, then you're at least part of democracy. Uh, And Trump's not that. And to some extent, not that I want to even talk up Bush for half a second. The fact that he did show up there does mean that at least he's in on the program. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're talking about Bush, and Steve is suggesting that uh, Donald Trump is a Bush League kind of guy. Do we want to segue and talk about the minor leagues? So we're going to talk about the minor leagues today, which has a lot of political components to it. Uh, and Don't I get credit for that segue? That was really good. That was very smooth, very professional. Let's start out just understanding what's going on with the minor league right now and, and what the new changes have been just in the last few months, in the last couple of years. I'm going to throw that to Craig just to start. Yeah, so this is not even in the last year. This was beginning in October of 2020, I guess. Well, no, there was probably a report in early 2019. But there's this thing called the Professional Baseball Agreement. That's what governs the relationship between Major League Baseball teams and minor league teams. And it gets renewed every few years. This is how affiliation works. This is who goes to who and all that kind of stuff. Major League Baseball let it expire without really trying to negotiate a new one with Minor League Baseball and then unilaterally said, we are just going to change the structure of Minor League Baseball. Instead of 160 teams, with some Major League teams having multiple affiliates, some having four or five, we are going to reduce it down to 120. Every team is going to be set with only four of uh, low A, high A, double A, and triple A Minor League teams. And uh, 40 teams are just going to be off into the wilderness. That plan, despite the objections of minor league business uh, men and minor league team owners and the objections of some politicians, temporary objections, uh, went into play and was completed as of December of 2020. 40 teams were disappeared. Three entire leagues, the New York Penn League, which dates back to the 30s, was completely eliminated. The Appalachian League, which is older than that, was de-affiliated. 40 teams were gone. A couple leagues were gone. Uh, A few independent leagues, the Frontier League, for example, the Pioneer League, they were converted into partner leagues, which are getting special privileges uh, from Major League Baseball. This all together has resulted in a situation where Major League Baseball has new, I won't say unprecedented, and we can get into the history a little bit, but does definitely has new power over the player development system that it did not have before. The draft has been cut in half. And uh, this was all premised on the idea of improving the lot of minor leaguers, improving nutrition, improving logistics and reducing travel times and things like that. There's a very strong argument that this was also uh, a 
part of Major League Baseball just wanting to save money on player development costs, as is evidenced by the amateur draft being cut in half from 40 to 20 rounds. So basically, Major League Baseball took a giant bomb, put it right in the middle of the minor leagues and and remade it in its preferred image. And so there are now, I think, at least two lawsuits challenging, I think, suing the teams, the individual Major League teams, as well as Major League Baseball. Do they have any chance or is that just going to fall apart? I think they're basically claiming that this is interfering with their ability to do business and is a violation of of the contract. I'll put my lawyer hat on here and say that I don't think these lawsuits are going anywhere legally. The suits, uh, there are a couple of New York teams. The, uh, the Staten Island Yankees have sued the Yankees in Major League Baseball. Uh, they were they were contracted. Uh, the, the team from Troy, New York, uh, met, I think it was a Mets, no. Mets affiliate? Maybe a Mets affiliate. Used to be a Mets affiliate. One of the affiliates. No, Astros affiliate. Yeah, I was going to say the Astros. Good old Astros. Yeah, uh, they got sued and Major League Baseball did. And again, it's the same kind of claim. The claims are... Uh, the, the lawyers among us uh, or among our listeners will will know that these are kind of BS claims. These are intentional infliction of or interference with contractual relations, tortious interference with a the contract. These are the claims that you assert when you really don't have claims. Major League Baseball uh, does a lot of bad things, but they do have a lot of lawyers. I think on the contractual side, figuring out whether they had the power to do this, they are pretty set. They had the power to do this. No one liked it, but they had the power to do it. Uh, these claims that have been asserted by the couple of minor league teams, I think, are mostly aimed at getting a nuisance settlement. It's going to cost, yeah, you know, for the Troy team, for example, it's going to basically double their annual operation cost because now they have to pay players. How did they even choose which were the 40 that were going to be exiled? Well, that's, and, I mean, that, that was asserted in the Troy lawsuit, actually. Um, they say there's backroom dealings. They say there's all kinds of things. And, and yeah, there probably is. Some of it was just strictly geographic. Some of it was legitimate. I, I'm a big fan of Appalachian League baseball. I'm from West Virginia that has a couple of Appalachian teams. I've gone to a lot of these very charming, very old rural parks in the hills and mountains. But it's also a giant pain for Major League Baseball to, uh, to operate there with affiliated uh, minor league teams, partially because it's remote. And if you have a guy in Princeton, West Virginia, and you want to move him up to another team, it's just hard to get him there because it's it's far away from anything. Also, these are low-level minor leagues where you are putting uh, recent uh, international signees who have had zero or very little exposure to the United States, and you're putting them in you know, Pulaski, Virginia, or Bluefield, West Virginia. And uh, that's the place where they're expected to acclimate to America. I, you know, I'm from there. It's probably a lot harder if you're from the Dominican Republic and you're 18 years old to acclimate to America in Bluefield, West Virginia, than it is in a larger city. Just going to throw that out there. So part of it's that. Some of it is just major league teams want the minor league affiliates to be closer (laughs) together now. Uh, Partially it's business and territorial. There's some synergies to be had if the Cleveland Indians or the former Cleveland Indians, the Cleveland Major League Baseball team has all of its uh, minor league teams in and around the Great Lakes area. It's easier for them. Getting players shuffled around from place to place just works better. So there were a number of factors. And I will not rule out that some of these minor league owners, even though I personally, a lot of us want to sort of defend them because they're the little guy against Major League Baseball. Some of these guys are just giant pains in the asses, to to be frank about it. I mean, these are a lot of them pretty wealthy local businessmen with a lot of power to throw around. And and in the past, minor league baseball has had more power vis-a-vis major league baseball than it used to. And they're not always easy to deal with. And I'm pretty sure major league baseball was like, you know what? I don't like that guy in that city. And uh, let's ask his team. The coverage of this and the response 
that I've seen at least has been hugely negative, including in Congress, the people representing those places like in the Appalachians. Uh, and, but you're making it sound like baseball, Major League Baseball has a point. This is not so uh, so clear cut. Uh, they, they have some points. I, I'm generally on the side of Minor League Baseball because I think this is bad overall for baseball in that I just keep going to my West Virginia examples, but Charleston, West Virginia that lost its team, Princeton, West Virginia. If you want to watch baseball, that's where you go. And it's a family event. It's all the classic things that people talk about, about the glory of minor league baseball. Well, it is true to a very large extent. It's a wonderful, safe place to bring your family on a, on a Friday night in the summer. And, and that just goes away. And I, I don't think that's good. It, it limits the amount of baseball that people have exposure to, uh, which I think in turn is going to eventually limit uh, the amount of people who are interested in Major League Baseball. And I think it's a bad business thing. At the same time, yeah, there are efficiencies to be had. So when I say that Major League Baseball has some good arguments, there are arguments from efficiency. There's a larger argument to be made about how good efficiency is as a reason to make moves like this. I know that Lincoln has not as rosy a view of the minor leagues and their charm as I think the rest of us might. And I, I want to ask you, Lincoln, why well, why that is, but also because he's from New York and San Francisco. Wait, New York has three minor league, two minor league teams, not anymore. But <laughs> yeah, really, I mean, all the Staten Island Yankees were fun. It was fun. I, I think I think that, that my view of minor league is 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 a little less positive for the following reasons. A lot of people enjoy it because they willfully don't focus on the exploitative aspect of it. If you're enjoying watching someone who was underpaid and exploited, I don't know that that's such a righteous activity. Uh, but but what also the, the real question I would raise is that I've seen minor league games at pretty much all levels, and I've seen major league games. They kind of scratch very different niches. A, a minor league game, in my experience, unless you're there, unless it happens that you know either there's just some super prospect there, or someone's doing a rehab start, or something like that. It's hanging out with your friends or your family. It's the weirdness that sometimes is around minor league baseball, and it's just, it's baseball. And I get that from watching a high school game in Central Park. What seems to me is that if these teams are eliminated, small towns of the kind Craig described, the people in those towns lose the opportunity to watch baseball. And the reason for that is because baseball's roots in American society and culture have substantially withered. Because if they hadn't, other opportunities would arise. So to some extent, what concerns me is not just that minor, from this perspective, not just that minor league baseball may be going away, but but that people in these towns and these places don't love baseball enough to find other ways to enjoy it. You're forgetting about television, and that is a huge part of this. This system was inefficient because it didn't evolve to support the major leagues. It evolved to have baseball, and over time starting with Branch Rickey, and we don't need to to get into all of that. But prior to Jackie Robinson, Branch Rickey's biggest contribution to baseball was inventing chain baseball or farm system baseball. And so the major league teams started either having contractual relationships or in many cases, just buying up these individual teams. And if you look at the list of affiliates that clubs had over time, now they have four. They might have 24 or 30. They had teams everywhere and they were subsidizing these operations because they were they were trying to monopolize the development of prospects. Before that, it was a bidding system. Every minor league player was in a sense a free agent. He just just happened to be owned or was, I, I should say, like the same way that that Japanese players come over now. So if a Joe DiMaggio made his way up 
with the San Francisco Seals. The San Francisco Seals had its own affiliate teams. So you would play your way up the chain at that level. And then scouts saw Joe DiMaggio, they would say to the San Francisco Seals, how much do you want for his rights? And then a, a bidding war would ensue. Well, that's the, something that the Cardinals couldn't compete with. So Branch Rickey just said, well, what if we own the Joe DiMaggio or, or the Stan Musial more aptly from the outset? But what started to destroy that system was the evolution of television, which meant that that team in Wheeling, West Virginia, now had to compete with Willie Mays and Musial and DiMaggio and people stopped going. That's the point. And they, and they created a different product because they couldn't compete in that way. So anyone in America who wants to, and now we have the internet, you know, MLB app and all that, can watch the best baseball in America. You can watch Major League Baseball. So the product that the minor leagues are offering is something different. And my point is that I don't think it's all that hard to replicate it. I'm, in, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of watching, you know, say one step above high-level baseball in small-town America with all of the kind of bells and whistles that make it a fun experience that has nothing to do with MLB. Does it change your opinion on this, Lincoln, that a lot of the stuff that is replacing the, the affiliated minor league baseball or college woodbat leagues where the players aren't even paid at all. You mentioned exploitation earlier. Now they're, now they're getting unpaid players and there are more of these college woodbat leagues than there used to be because of this change. And so there's even less of a chance that any of these guys will ever play high level baseball after college. I, I think the whole, the whole college having, you know, one son who briefly played college sports. I mean, if you call, you know, Oberlin, baseball college sports but you know i have a real problem with with college sports in general i mean i never quite understood it i don't i don't enjoy it and and i, I think it is exploitative but it, it still kind of goes to the the point that 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 communities and towns could create a different kind of baseball if there was a demand for it and if there's not a demand for it then then all the stories we hear about how fun it is i can take my kids i can watch them milk the cows i know i'm sounding like the big city Schmuck, I know that, but I mean, it's, it's a little tiresome, right? I mean, we live in a culture where where we are told over and over again that real Americans live in small towns. Well, some of us don't. So, if that's really true, then they would create that without having to have. And you talk about they're often owned by the rich guy, but I know a lot of rich people in L.A., New York, San Francisco, Washington who own baseball teams in other parts of the country. So it's it's a whole other level of kind of of, of the centralization of any kind of organized baseball, which. To me, is sad, and if people really wanted baseball of the kind they describe, I don't think it's they could create it. But if the demand isn't there, then I mean, it does raise other questions about the developmental side, how talent is developed, and all of that. And those are different sets of questions. Well, that was what I was just going to ask. Actually, getting aside from the fun of having a baseball team locally, is this the best way to develop players and to bring players up to the major leagues who are good enough to be there, or is there some other kind of model? And what is what is the alternative going to look like now that minor league baseball is not going to be as much of a source, I suppose? I wanted to certainly ask Adrian about that. And would we know the difference? Well, I mean, two things for me. One, as a former Division three college baseball player, you know, I think there's a whole place for that level and kind of baseball. But I think the question that Tova is asking is about development role. Uh, what Lincoln was talking about was kind of this fan-based consumption and the role of that. They're two different things. And what Major League Baseball is doing is cutting costs. They're deferring the costs onto others. And my worry, real quick, 
What do we have? What happens to the undrafted high school prospect? Are they going to defer that over to the uh, college pr- uh, system t- so that colleges and universities can now take on the cost of developing baseball talent? Or are they going to send it, outsource it to the Dominican Republic in the lower levels of the minor leagues? It over 50% in rookie and A-ball players are coming from the Dominican, from Venezuela, from Latin America. And so, yes, I understand not sending them out to Bluefield like they did 50, 60, 70 years ago. On the other hand, where are they going to send them for this? Are they going to stay in the Dominican Republic till they're ready to come? And so I'm fascinated how baseball is trying to present itself, MLB, I should say, trying to present itself as providing a better path for these Dominican, these Latino players when they're really just outsourcing and shifting responsibilities to other people to do it for them till they get a more polished product. Or so they get a less a less polished, a, a weaker product, but no one knows the difference. That's where I think this goes. I think that's what Major League Baseball is sort of counting on from fans. I mean, I think the, the, the conversation is probably yeah. we have – 20 rounds of a draft instead of 40. No one's going to know the difference. We have players who have come up against less competition and uh, maybe a less rigorous, uh, uh, well, and we could argue about whether it's going to be less rigorous to Tova's question about what will replace it. But, you know, I, I think it's probably safe to say when you cut the talent pool, you're, you're going to probably cut the overall talent level. One argument might be, well, we're just taking the, the bottom off. I don't know. Uh, as far as what that model might look like. I mean, we might have had a, a very mini preview of it last year. There was no minor league baseball last year. We had these camps where some of the top prospects would play and work out and guys on the taxi squad would play. And some were called up to the bigs and some weren't uh, shuffled in and out when there were COVID positives and things like that. But it was, you know, what, what, what an extremist might say, an extreme analytical dude who, you know, is too extreme for even the Houston Astros might say is get rid of the minor leagues. Totally. Let's just take them, put them all in our spring training facilities year round. We will run, uh, Ivan Drago and Rocky four style training camps. <laughs> and, uh, we will, you know, create baseball players, uh, in exactly the way we want without any of the externalities of them having to go to McDonald's in Bluefield, West Virginia. We'll see to what extent player development was was hurt last year by guys not having minor league competition. Not that it'll be a significant sample, but it'll be interesting to watch. I don't think this is anywhere near extreme. I mean, let's be honest. We still have, you know, 120 minor league teams. Uh, there are still going to be four levels of, uh, of stuff for players to go through. The path that the top guys were taking before is not going to change. So, uh, you know, a lot of this, because it was a huge talking point from October through, you know, December, got that sort of off season. There's nothing else to talk about. Let's freak out about this. I don't think in effect it's going to be that great. I do think in the long term, it's not going to be a wonderful thing for baseball. Someone writing about this, I think in the nation had a, a wonderful expression or, or a great way of putting it, saying that what baseball or Major League Baseball, that what they were communicating is that baseball games are the wasteful product of baseball. Right. And that's a great way of putting it. And one of those, you know, got what you wanted, lost what you had situations in terms of getting people to value the, the product. And and as Lincoln said, you know, less less baseball. I don't know if it would be supported or not, but I, I think there's nothing wrong with a business having a, a loss leader. But one aspect of this that really has been nagging at me, and I haven't looked systemically to see who gained and who lost in terms of what I'm about to say. But being the New Jersey kid here, I've been looking at it from a New Jersey perspective. And I have been to 
both on a professional basis and on a, a fan basis. I've been to Trenton, the Trenton Thunder and to the Somerset Patriots, who have now been traded for each other. The Trenton Thunder were the AA Yankees franchise for a long time. They've now been eliminated. And the Patriots, who are in the Atlantic League, have been added to baseball. They have been affiliated. And what bothers me about that is that Trenton is this post-industrial city that doesn't have a ton of money. The average income in Trenton is about $20,000. The population is 50% black and 25% Latino. Whereas if you go to where the Patriots are, the stadium is wedged between a Costco and a Home Depot. It's very suburban. And the average income in that county is about 50 grand a year. So their universe is apart. And I feel like to the extent that there is civic responsibility and base. I know it's a very naive thing to say, but they they really shivved this city that didn't have a whole lot of of room to be shivved. And I, I find that so painful that they made that particular trade. Yeah, I just want to, first of all, make sure that uh, credit is given where credit is due. It was actually a Mother Jones article from December. Yeah, and it is a very good article that Mother Jones has been covered, covering minor league baseball oh, very thank well you. for a number of years, so that's not a surprise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm thinking about some of the other issues with respect to minor leaguers, and I don't know say, if they're expecting to use some of the savings that they're making by cutting out 40 teams to pay minor league players more than $4 an hour. They're going to do that. They're going to make ticket prices cheaper at the major league level. They always, oh, yeah, yeah, they exactly sold it that like way. That. I mean, in the, you know, when they started to get political pushback, Rob Manford himself, I think, even came out, oh, well, we're going to be able to better compensate minor league players. And everybody went, yeah, sure, Rob, whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's going to, going to happen at all. I mean, th there's a reason why they got that, you know, Saving America's Pastime Act. Uh, they lobbied and got that passed through Congress a couple of years ago. They, they don't have to. Legally, they don't have to. They treat these guys as, as their, you know, seasonal workers now. So they're going to continue to do that. Yeah, I just want to tell people for information and all, for what it's worth, I also have a law degree, but I don't use it very much. There is a case going through the federal courts right now, right, Craig, around yes. the minimum wage and labor conditions that try to at least get the minimum wage applied to minor league baseball that the Supreme Court allowed to move forward. Yeah, this was, now it's based in state law. It's California and Arizona. And they have state minimum wage laws that aren't being honored by this. And they the, the big fight for like two years now has been, 
class certification. And between California and Arizona, you basically get almost every minor leaguer that that has been around. I, they might have gotten Florida by now. I haven't checked it for a while. If you get Florida, you have everybody because at some point, every single minor leaguer plays either in or trains in Florida, Arizona, or plays in California, one of the many teams there. So they've got class certification there. What comes of it is going to be hard to say. My guess is where it's going to come out is in the past, everybody up until 2018 or whenever that law was passed is going to get some back award the same way you'll get a coupon from you know your cable provider when you are informed that you were part of a class action you didn't know anything about i mean here's my question so if part of the argument for these change of relationship between the minor leagues and major league baseball is you know based on some efficiencies right or cutting costs uh which raises the question as we discussed about uh the raise the question of player development and how that's going to happen now but what about the argument that minor leagues are central to just the growth and the the growth of the game? It seems like the they've uh, major league baseball has calculated that uh, the minor leagues are not essential, at least in their in their current form, to the growth of the game. Because that you know, for certainly older heads, you know, minor league baseball, you know, is part of the romance of baseball, right? The Bull Durham story in the Hollywood film, right? The kind of the romantic quality of small town baseball. I was waiting for Bull Durham to come up. Is the lore of the game for these certain previous generations of baseball fans, right? Although those those stories often, you know, obscure the not just the exploitation, but the racism that many players of color have experienced in these small town environments of the, you know, whether it's Birmingham or wherever, right? Yeah, my my nostalgia, I, I you know, my my defense, such as it is of minor league baseball, notwithstanding, I am I'm ardently anti nostalgia in almost every part of my life and it's amazing how much nostalgia bull durham though it's my favorite baseball movie probably set back the cause of thinking smart about minor league and major league baseball more than anything else because it romanticized you know what was really really crappy to be honest i mean the carolina (laughs) league is where you hear a ton of stories about horrible racism coming from the the stands uh to fans you know the durham athletic park which which people just thought was adorable in bull durham was you know bulldozed and they put a brand new one up a few years later because it was a piece of crap and no one wanted to go to it that's just a different thing altogether but to your question frank i think there are far more lincoln mitchell's in major league baseball's office than than nostalgic craig calcaterra's when it comes to the value of growing the game through minor league baseball and i think they're they have a good point i i mean i really do and as steve said People, if you're going to become a baseball fan now, you have access to it on TV. Now, that's a totally different conversation about whether Major League Baseball is doing its best to get people into that, what with blackout rules and everything else, but we'll do that on another episode. I think that they have just discounted the idea of Minor League Baseball as a overall significant growth vehicle for baseball as a whole. And they they think, and even if there is some growth there, I think they think that it's better to have full control over a smaller car than partial control over a larger one. If you had a magic wand and you could wave that magic wand, would you rather have 200 affiliated minor league baseball teams that are well-functioning and all of that, or would you rather have 200 youth baseball leagues with kids playing in these same small towns? And I want you to consider for the good of baseball, for the good of America, and just for the kind of karmic overall good. It seems to me it's not even close. Kids baseball without a, without question. That's that, that's my point. It's not even close. But Lincoln, that, that's not a choice because. But we don't have that either, right? Yep. <laughs> exactly. MLB's not going to fund RBI in two hundred towns to make sure that African American youth have access to play baseball, and and that's what's to me upsetting about how MLB is approaching this because they're saying it's for the better of the players. The majority of drafted players in the amateur draft 
are middle-class white kids whose parents have invested over $100,000 in getting that kid ready to be drafted. And they've, they've shrunk, MLB has shrunk that pool down to 20 rounds now. But the, the reason I raised the question is because this emphasis on reviving minor league baseball with all of its problems, I mean, it seems to me that, that the gateway drug to a lifetime of being a baseball fan is not watching some team in Salinas. It's playing baseball. Yeah, absolutely. No question about that. And, and it's cheaper. That would be a better investment. And, and a reason, again, is because minor league baseball is this, this kind of – you can't disaggregate it from the nostalgia story. And the nostalgia story, as, as Craig and Frank have pointed out, is, is, shall we charitably say, flawed. I want to pick up on what Adrian said a little bit about we, – we've talked a lot in all of the, the webinars and, and last, last time about the horrible job that MLB has done on issues of race – and diversifying baseball. And I wonder what is the impact of some of the direction, at least, this is going in for attracting more players of color to play, to be involved in the game in other ways. Is there some kind of fallout from it that that, uh, involves those issues? A shorter draft or a smaller draft is not going to make it more possible for a a young African-American kid who's not a first rounder, but might be a 21st rounder to get in. I think similarly, one of the things I give minor league baseball a lot of credit for over the last three years uh, before they did not have a 2020 season was that they had launched an initiative to engage the Latino fan base called Copa de la Diversión that went from 16 to 64 to almost 100 different minor league affiliates throughout the United States, reaching out to Latino communities in substantive ways, not like the Cerveceros, Milwaukee Brewers once, you know, wear a uniform, but literally having community engagement. Minor League Baseball had done all this effort. Major League Baseball comes stomping in and changes the whole thing and makes it very difficult to sustain the kind of actually good that some individuals are doing for the idea that we can figure out from launch angles and arm angles better the development of a future major leaguer than actually playing the game. I I love what Steve mentioned before with the article that playing baseball as the wasteful byproduct, come on, you need at-bats, you need game situations. This is going to be bad, nothing but negative, I think, as far as the racial and socioeconomic makeup of the player pool goes and what it means for for poor players, for players of color, for players from Latin America. Um, you know, when you cut the draft in half, you only emphasize more the need for traveling teams and, and clinic instruction and everything else that makes it very, very expensive and makes, in America, baseball a sport for wealthy exurban kids. And then it puts what much more emphasis on the international signing period and the international signings that Major League Baseball makes uh, because you got to get your talent somewhere else. If you have 20 fewer guys, you can draft in the United States. And as Everyone is known there are, there are well-documented problems of exploitation in, uh, in the international market. Now there's also a cap in the market, so there's less money to be made by the, by the talent coming out of the Dominican Republic and Venezuela and places like that. So I think as far as it, that goes, this is just a completely negative development. 
And that community aspect hasn't really been tried in our lifetime. And I don't just mean reaching out to certain groups, but in the framing of minor league fandom. If you look back at the earlier part of the 20th century before, say, the 1950s, people really cared who won the International League Championship. There was a little World Series for for the, the minor league crown. And part of that was that midseason call-ups and minor league teams being used as, as kind of a, a taxi squad wasn't much less of a thing. So if a team said, and I'm not saying this was necessarily optimal, but in the 1950s, if a, a Mike Trout was assigned to Bluefield, he wasn't coming up. He generally wasn't going to move between levels that much, and he probably wasn't jumping to the major leagues. There are exceptions to that too, but as a as a broad rule, your team was your team, just like if you're a Mets or Yankees fan in a given season, most of the 25 guys that you see in April are going to be the 25 guys that you see in September. And the legitimacy of those minor league races as the minor leagues became more slavishly controlled by the major leagues and the needs of the major league teams, those were eroded. Because now, if a, a Mike Trout is playing for a, a top minor league team and he's hitting 350 with 15 home runs at the break, he's going to get called up. And if that team loses the rest of its games the rest of the way, no one cares, or at least no one in the, the major league front offices care. There's not a civic sense of it that says, you know, that Bluefield wins the championship this year should be really important to Bluefield and should be really important to people in that league. And so they they haven't tried promoting it that way. And what they tried to do is orient it around the fact that you're going to go and see Mike Trout in his nascent state and you're going to get to do it cheaply with the whole family. And these are things that could have been used and, and changed to make people have more of a, a a sense of stakes in the minor leagues as opposed to just deleting them outright. Well, it presupposes a, a sense of community that I think Lincoln and others are skeptical even exists in the country anymore. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit... I think this is an inevitable with affiliated minor leagues. If your Mike Trout is hitting that well, you know, on August 1st, you're going to bring him up. That's the nature of affiliated minor leagues. The the, the Joe DiMaggio you ex example you gave earlier, Steve, it's important. That's not entirely accurate. And the reason for that is this. Nobody in San Francisco in 1935, when Joe DiMaggio was playing center field for the Seals, thought the Seals were a minor league team. When I started going to Giants games in the mid-70s, the older dudes behind me and my brother and my friends were constantly, as if passing on, you know, tribal knowledge, would say, you know, we had Major League Baseball here before the Giants. And I'm not just I'm not just talking about the Seals, but that was true with the Los Angeles Stars, the Oakland Oaks, all of the, the real strong PCL teams. But it wasn't just true of the PCL. In the first half of the 20th century, the best baseball players in America and indeed the world were scattered on different leagues in different teams. Some kept out because of uh, because they were African-American or, or dark-skinned Latinos who weren't allowed to play in the big leagues, some because they could make more money staying in their hometown in Oakland or L.A. or somewhere, some because they were over in Japan. As that's begun to change, an enormous amount of power as to how we define and experience baseball has been turned over to MLB. And as someone who loves baseball, I'm not really comfortable having Rob Manford telling me what games I can and can't can can't exist in my community. I happen No, that was my whole point. The PCL was special for structural right. reasons and 
they they what they lacked was some kind of galvanic leadership that would have allowed them to say, hey, we're a major league. We've got the attendance. We've got the facilities. We've got the players. Major League Baseball, you better figure out how to fit in a third league. And there were at different times movements to do that. And it they lacked the the Ban Johnson. But that's my point, that Major League Baseball in in over time was able to define what counts and what doesn't. And there's no intrinsic reason that the International League race or the uh, the American Association is defunct now, but the at the time the American Association race or the PCL race should mean less than the American or National League race. It just somehow got defined in that in that way. In some cases, back in the 1870s or at the beginning of the 20th century, that there's no inherent reason for that. And if baseball wanted the minor leagues as they function now to be more of a rewarding proposition for them just on a cash basis, they could have tried to to reinvigorate the sense of of local importance is is that's my only point. I'm not I'm not trying trying to say that that uh that that the PCL wasn't uh its own thing because it clearly was and that's a great thing. The point I was building building towards which is related to that is that is that if Rob Manfred is going to say that these are the only minor league teams that can exist, it seems to me there's an opening there to say, okay, then communities that, that are losing these minor league teams can reorient and, and can create teams. There can be independent leagues. The idea of non-affiliated baseball, which does not have to be part of a program that is that is a training program, and Craig's example of you know the training camp where there's no baseball, we're just having you lift weights or whatever you were, you know, kind of in, in the idea you were, you were coming up with there as, as the kind of the, the most, the, the kind of the dystopic alternative, you know, they can say, okay, in this league, this is going to be the rules, you know, to, to move away from having MLB dictate what one or two or three cuts down of baseball looks like is, is to me, that would be a better alternative than another minor league team where it's controlled by their major leagues. And it's all about player development and, you can't really get behind them for to root for them if you live in the community because the turnover is so high and they they become a, you know all of that. So I I'm just not convinced. This only is a, is a kind of tragedy for small b baseball. If we yeah, but but there's a there's a, a magic word that we haven't used yet because that's what the Atlantic League was and the Frontier League was, and they got hoovered up. And the word is monopoly. And I was wondering this when when uh, Craig, you and Tova were talking about these potential lawsuits, why the antitrust exemption is not being targeted for harpooning in some of these cases. I think it doesn't apply to the minor leagues, is my understanding. Yeah, I think that's the rub here, uh, because I I had written it down as we were talking about antitrust exemption. But, you know, is MLB stopping other team or other towns from getting a major league team through ending minor league baseball? This is how some might try to parse it. But the fact that MLB does have an antitrust exemption helps them do this because, you know, what grounds do you actually sue them on? As Craig noted earlier, there's very limited grounds. And I guess that perhaps is what upsets me the most is that MLB is in position to go ahead and do it. And the fact that they took advantage of COVID, the 2020 season, to just do it is what really upsets me. Well, and that brings it back to where we sort of began, which is and and getting to our intersections of political culture and baseball culture. It's just a total business, and it's however we can make money. And 
it, its place in our country and our society and the role it plays in local economies, all of that is just completely secondary, if that high up. It is secondary, but you know, of course, as we're talking, and this is a bit of a tangent, but it's it's related. If one thing that we've seen over the last year is that uh, even Major League Baseball uh, is feeling pressure to be accountable to a larger public, whether it was the case of uh, you know the Indians, uh, the, the Cleveland baseball franchise uh, changing its name or saying it's going to change its name and hasn't done it yet, they'll change it at some point in the future, uh, or what just happened last week with the Jared Porter situation, right? That doesn't happen. Jared Porter, the, the GM who was fired after it was revealed that he sexually harassed uh, at least one uh, woman reporter in 2016. So, you know, that development, of course, forcing the Mets to, to fire him. Uh, and, and that development, to me, suggests that Major League Baseball is feeling pressure uh, from, from movements that we've seen, whether it's Me Too, right? That doesn't happen. That case doesn't happen without the Me Too movement of a couple of years ago. Uh, what happened with the Cleveland franchise doesn't happen uh, without the Floyd protests. And so, you know, as Major League Baseball and team owners continue to move down this road of efficiency and cutting costs and plowing it, you know, plowing ahead uh, with the bottom line only as their concern, I think as, as 2021 unfolds, it's going to be to see how how that pressure uh, impinges itself on baseball because the Jared Porter situation, you know, is an example of how the white guys uh, who run the lords of the sport uh, along with the Kim Eng hiring, of course, um, are, are going to have a little more difficulty, at least, uh, just uh, running roughshod over over um, over the concerns of the of the broader public and social justice concerns. What I also found interesting about the Jared Porter hiring and then firing was when the Mets had their press conference, and a woman reporter journalist asked Alderson and the Mets higher up, "How many women did they ask about?" Porter before they hired him, and the answer was none. But everyone was like, he's a stand-up guy, he's a good guy, this and that, and no one had bothered. And yet, look at what the Chicago Cubs did when this was brought to their attention. That's the worst part. Oh, my God. I mean, the, the Cubs, the, there was one employee who told her to take it as an opportunity or something like that. That's appalling, and and I know it was 2016 but come on I, yes I, I just can't i there were all these we've, we've really gone on a tangent and i do want to I, I have written down that i want to do a um podcast on women and baseball at some point but i will just say that there were all these articles about i'm really glad this has happened it's finally time to reckon with this baseball really needs to reckon with this i was kind of like wow really they haven't they haven't already it's just um, astounding to me. And I guess that was naive of me, especially I've been thinking about how it's big news that the Super Bowl is going to have a woman ref for the first time. And I'm wondering where the first Major League Baseball woman umpire is at all. But that's another subject for another day. So we've solved the problem of the minor leagues and uh, yeah, absolutely. American democracy, too. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Say It and Contagious. And as I said at the outset of the episode, we had intended to commence our every other week schedule of mini episodes, beginning with episode three, but the passing of Henry Aaron superseded that. And so we will be back next week as a panel to talk about the impact of a player who was very important to all of us. So until then, happy trails, and we'll see you next time. Happy trails, really?
I know. I I blank. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. How do you sleep, Pacho? <laughs> Happy trail? What are you nuts? <laughs> By the way, I am a frenemy of the Atlanta Braves, and I write the uh, daily baseball and culture and politics and whatever the hell else I want newsletter, Cup of Coffee. Which I highly recommend. That's very generous of you. I actually love it. It's one of the first things I read in the morning. Why, thank you, Tova. It's nice of you. I have this association with it now. I, I have not, this is not a brag or anything, but over the last six months, I've lost about 20 pounds. Part of my daily diet is to have a half cup of nuts, which seems to like stabilize whatever enzymes cause you to get hungry. And my reading material for that is Craig's newsletter. So for me, there's now this Pavlovian response, which is when I see the Craig cup of coffee email pop up, I crave cashews. You associate me with nuts, is what you're saying. When you see Craig's newsletter, you say, this is nuts. Right? <laughs>